Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Ingvild Olsen, an addiction medicine physician at IBR Reach Health Services in Baltimore. Dr. Olson is also the vice president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. We discuss how treatment programs have had to transform themselves to be able to take care of patients and stay as safe as possible from COVID-19. Let's listen. Dr. Olson, thank you so much for joining me. You are the medical director of an addiction treatment program here in Baltimore. So when the pandemic was headed here, when you realized that COVID-19 was coming to Baltimore, what were you thinking about? So I was worried. You know, I was worried about my patients. Um, I see a lot of patients who have opiate use disorder. We provide them with life-saving treatment, including medications like methadone and buprenorphine. And so I was worried that how are we going to continue to do that? Because the way that the regulations for opioid treatment programs work in the U.S., we see between 350 and 400 people a day. You know, that could really potentially make us a hotspot for COVID transmission. So you're worried you might have an outbreak in the clinic and have to shut down. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what else were you worried about? So we were. Um, I was worried about our staff. Um, you know, we have staff, many of whom themselves have underlying health conditions that put them at risk for severe COVID illness. You know, we are a healthcare facility, but we don't really have access or we don't use, you know, many of the personal protective equipment like face shields and face masks and surgical gowns that the CDC was recommending that you needed to have in order to actually take care of patients with COVID illness. We just don't really use that on a day-to-day basis. So you're worried about an outbreak shutting down the clinic. You're worried about the safety of your staff. And what about your concern for just overdoses. Yeah. So, you know, that's something that we always worry about because we take care of patients who have substance, who have opiate use disorder for the most part, but other substance use disorders. And so what we're really trying to do is to reduce their risk of um, an opioid related overdose. You know, I was worried that if we either weren't able to take new patients, we weren't able to see new people or that, you know, we were going to get to a point where we would need to shut down the clinic or have, you know, a massive outbreak, then, you know, what happens to all those patients? You know, if we can't get them their methadone or buprenorphine and they go into withdrawal and they relapse and then risk an overdose, you know, maybe then uh, we would lose many of them to that. So um, what did you do? Yeah, so we did a few things. The first thing we did is we really, I really wanted to make sure that we could reduce the number of patients who we were seeing every day, right? Because having 30 to 40 patients in our waiting room at any given time, that's like a recipe for COVID transmission. So you were saying you saw 350 to 400 patients a day over how many hours, roughly? About eight hours. Over eight hours. So it's yeah. a pretty busy clinic. Mm-hmm. So, so how do yeah. you reduce that? Yeah. 
So the first thing we really needed is we needed some relief from the regulatory rules that essentially govern how we provide medications and how we provide treatment. And fortunately, the federal government, um, through the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, and our own state, they really acted very quickly to make sure that we could provide longer periods of medication to patients, uh, up to two weeks for less stable patients who could kind of handle that amount of medication, or even up to a month. So in other words, people who were coming very frequently to get medicine to your clinic, you got the ability to have them come less frequently. Yeah, and that was critical. So, you know, starting kind of in early March, we made a couple of different decisions. So the first of which was the people who had been coming, you know, twice a, a month, we moved really quickly to just coming once a month. Um, people who had been coming once a week, we moved really quickly to having them come, you know, once a month or twice a month. And then the people who, you know, came more frequently because they were less stable, we worked really hard as a team to make sure that, you know, there were individuals at home with them who could actually help make sure that they were going to be safe with their medication, that they had naloxone, kind of the um, opioid uh, overdose reversal agent. We handed out lots of naloxone to patients that we got also through some assistance from the, our health department, not only in our city, but also at the state. We um, made sure that, you know, we got some um, uh, locked canvas bags that we could actually help people lock up their medication. We did a lot of education around safe storage of medication. You know, we had people who were bringing in their significant others and family members to help them make sure that, you know, if they weren't kind of completely stable, that we then had family members and others around who knew um, about their substance use disorders and could be there if they really got into trouble. So you put all this into place and how much were you able to reduce the number of patients coming every day? Yeah, so we are now at a point where we're seeing between 80 to 100 patients a day. So you cut it down by like 75%. Yeah. And and then did you re-engineer the clinic in terms of where people stand and sit to try to keep people apart? Yeah, so we've really been following all the CDC recommendations around um, physical distancing. So now we get to, we're at a point where we can really, we have space to keep people six feet apart if we need to. We have rotated staff, so we've staggered staff so that not all the staff are in clinic at the same time. We're using a lot of phone counseling services because the other thing that our patients rely on us for is really the support that we provide through individual and group counseling services. And obviously, at a time when, you know, you really don't want and you can't have a number of people in the same room um, without being able to separate um, appropriately, we just don't really have the space for that. You know, we still wanted to very much keep in touch with our patients and keep those that connection. Let me ask you, if someone were to get sick or to develop symptoms, then they can't get their medicine. What do you do? Yeah, so that was another really big thing we had to figure out. So alternative medication delivery systems, fortunately, some of the federal guidelines around that or rules around that also have been relaxed during this time. So 
We have staff that are making deliveries. We have family members who are um, able to pick up medication for people. We're now actually at a point where we are looking at courier systems. So bonded courier systems to actually help deliver medication to patients. It's really turned the model upside down. It really has. It has. And I think the other thing that um, it has become pretty really clear is that, you know, our patients... They're also, they're very worried about themselves. They are um, staying at home. They are you know, but they're also worried about us, and they are struggling to kind of try and you know manage not only the anxiety and stress of their current situation, but then you know what does that mean for their recovery? Were you able to get enough protective equipment for your staff? So, you know, that is, was another really, um, I think, key thing that we needed to, and I was worried about because, you know, we had been hearing and we've continued to hear that personal protective equipment is in short supply across the country. You know, we had a small supply of face masks. We had gloves. We really didn't have much in the way of other face shields or gowns. gowns. Yeah. And, you know, so we've had to be very sparing um, in terms of how we allocate that. We were able to get some uh, orders of face masks and now just in the last couple of weeks, um, some orders of face shields. Our program director was really innovative and got some face masks through uh, somehow. Let's somehow. just say somehow. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So um, let me ask you from a slightly higher level about the epidemic within the pandemic. And what do you think is actually happening with the opioid epidemic? It used to be all the headlines were about the opioid epidemic, yeah. and now it's COVID-19 24-7, but right. the opioid problem didn't magically disappear. Do you think um, that we're holding the line? Do you think it's getting worse? Do you think there's some potential opportunities? What What's going on? I'm curious, for example, whether you're able to start new patients on treatment or whether you're just, just trying to kind of defend the, the patients that you have. Yeah. No, I think it's, um, they're great questions. You know, one of the things I think that we, we never really throughout all of this wanted to completely close our doors to, um, to people who needed us. And, you know, even though unfortunately the federal government, the, one of the, the outstanding pieces is that for patients who need methadone, um, we are still required to see them for a face-to-face in-person physical examination for buprenorphine, we don't have to do that. We have had uh, people who walk through our doors still looking for treatment. We are able to accommodate them using some, you know, various different, getting various different pieces of information in different ways and then kind of doing their physical exam. Uh, you know, we have seen that there's been a slight reduction in the number of people who are coming for care. And that does worry me. Because, as you said, you know, the opioid crisis, it was there before COVID. It's going to be there after COVID. And, you know, even just the addiction crisis in general. I mean, there are estimates from states like California and other places where alcohol sales have increased by 50 to 70 percent. So it's not just opioids. We also need to think about alcohol and um, just the stress of everything, everything, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've heard from our patients that... um, the, the street drug supply, um, it's not exactly the same as it was before all this. We've also seen that heroin's probably making a little bit of a comeback. It's cheaper. 
It's gone from about $6 a pill on the street in Baltimore to about 2 to $3 a pill. And, but it's not, the potency is really minimal and it's kind of being cut with lots of different things um, because it's probably being, people are probably trying to stretch it out. There's still fentanyl around, maybe not quite as much um, as there had been. Um, but, you know, in looking at some of the data from kind of recently, the little that we've been able to, able to um, find is that we're not hearing about a lot of overdoses from all the medications that are out there. We are uh, kind of hearing about people who are, you know, still using and overdosing um, because of their heroin or fentanyl use in combination with things like alcohol. Syringe service programs, you know, a lot of the harm reduction kind of programs, um, many of them have not been able to do as much outreach as they've been doing. And so, you know, it is, um, it's scary. It's, uh, it's scary for, you know, kind of people, I think, who are really trying to, to manage their, uh, their substance use disorders, all of their underlying health conditions and all the stress that goes along with that. And have you had patients who've gotten COVID? Um, we have, you know, many of whom may not get to the point where they get tested, but we certainly have had some patients who have um, had symptoms concerning for COVID. We've had some patients who have had to isolate in hotel rooms because they're homeless. We've had some patients who, you know, have isolated at home. We've had staff members who, you know, have had family members who have tested positive. And so it's certainly something that's on everybody's mind. So um, in the midst of all this, in the midst of disruption to your clinic, a total re-engineering of the process and, you know, your fear for both your patients and your staff, how do you see what's going to happen when you look to the future? What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are um, many lessons that we're going to be able to learn from all of this. I mean, one lesson I think is that we, um, that connectedness with people is really important. And, you know, if we can do that via telehealth and phone calls and getting reimbursed for, you know, those services, that's something that I think is a really good thing. And that we would want to continue because sometimes people have circumstances that don't allow them to actually come in person. So you, you may be exploring new ways to provide services, mm -hmm. even when this is all Absolutely. over. Absolutely. The other thing that I think has been a lesson and that, you know, we're going to need to get some data on is... You know, is it what happens when you actually give patients more medication, maybe earlier than we have been traditionally? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what are the risks and benefits to that? And it might be that maybe that is something that we can actually kind of start to think about um, doing earlier than perhaps we usually did. Do you think that there may be some opportunities to get more people into treatment now? I think so. It's certainly an, a time for people. People shouldn't avoid treatment at this point. You know, there are still treatment programs and treatment providers that are um, taking new patients. You know, we are, I know most of the treatment facilities and, um, and many practitioners in Baltimore are because this is a really stressful time. But getting people treated for their opioid use disorder, their substance use disorders in general, is going to be so important for now and in the future. So, you know, we need to, to be smart about it. We need to take but you can't pause. But you can't pause. No. Great. Well, you pause long enough to talk to me in the podcast, which I really appreciate. So thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening. Thank you.